Got time for a quick story. Steve Hackett was the guitarist in Genesis, at least the main guitarist, I should say, because he and Mike Rutherford would sometimes play off guitar parts. Tony Banks would play a little guitar. But Steve Hackett was the main guitarist in the early to mid-1970s, back in the era when they were most known for progressive rock. He has continued with his career with a whole lot of diverse solo albums instrumental albums, blues albums, even some pop-leaning albums. But the cool thing about Steve Hackett is you always know his guitar sound, his guitar style. If you're familiar with the works of Genesis in the early to mid-1970s and then you listen to a Steve Hackett solo album, you pick up on that signature real quick. And that sometimes extends to the arrangements in his songs. Such was the case with his January 2019 release, At the Edge of Light. And I was able to get an interview with Steve Hackett shortly thereafter. Also, at the, part of the reason for the interview was to talk about his upcoming tour at the time, which was going to have the full Genesis 1973 album, Selling England by the Pound, performed. The entire album performed live in concert. And so... Part three of our Genesis series on Got Time for a Quick Story is my early 2019 interview with Steve Hackett. Take a listen. Well, we're talking today to Steve Hackett, was a guitarist in Genesis back in the early 70s. He's going to be touring later on this year here in America, performing one of the classic Genesis albums, Selling England by the Pound, along with other music. He's got a new album out, At the Edge of Light, came out on January 25th. And he will be, as I said, throughout the country, in particular right around here on October 4th, downstate at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee, and on October 7th, a little west of here in the Twin Cities at the Pantages Theater. First off, uh, great to talk to you today, and to, for starters. I've listened to, um, I'm a big Genesis fan myself, so obviously familiar with the early 70s, early to mid-70s work as well. Um, I'm going to start with Selling England by the Pound, and okay. in particular on... On that album, most people are going to point, like fans are going to point to Firth of Fifth as maybe one of the most iconic moments on the album. What do you find are your, maybe that's one of them, but what are your favorite moments, whether it's something a line you played or just a, a part of a song? Well, I, I think that, that one, I think, the, I think the song is particularly good, and um, uh, the guitar, guitar solo on that, you know, the combination, I think, of myself and Tony, um, it's a very long guitar solo, but it's a very memorable melody uh, that started out as his, and then I made my contributions to it. So um, I'm particularly proud of that. And um, I actually loved the entire album, uh, particularly the first track as well, Dancing with the Moonlit Night. So when I'm touring, I'm going to do the whole of this album. Uh, I won't be cherry-picking across the, the Genesis stuff, I'm specifically doing that, and then, and then concentrating on a couple of solo albums of mine, Spectral Mornings and, and the new one, At the Edge of Light. So uh, that's the main thrust of, of, of the tour coming up. And I understand there's a, what is this, an unreleased track that you had worked on with Peter Gabriel, correct me if I'm wrong? That's right, yes, there's one, one track that was not on uh, Selling England by the Pound, but it's something that we were going to do back in the day. So I may include that as a as a deleted scene uh, to try and make that um, to bring something else to that um, uh, to that album, so that people get the full picture. Mm-hmm. It's very often the case that certain tracks were were nearly left off, like after the ordeal. But it's become 
so much a fan favorite that I'm so pleased that um, I fought like crazy to make sure it was on the album at the time. And um, um, I felt strongly about this other one. But, you know, as they say, you know, another one bites the dust, to quote another <laughs> track. Um, sometimes these things happen, and uh, sometimes, the, you know, the baby gets thrown up with the bathwater. But I did a version of uh, Deja Vu, which was on the first Genesis Revisited, and uh, Paul Carrick sang that. But it was originally Peter Gabriel, of course, who was going to sing that um, in the first place. What in particular do you appreciate and admire about selling England by the pound? I know it was getting it, you've you've cited John Lennon listening to that, and and it's a bit of a shame that more people didn't know about that at the time. I know, imagine That's what right. could have yeah. done. But what what made that album stand out? I know it was one that kind of vaulted the band a little further, and I know what I like became a well, hit in the UK. That's right. I think, you know, one has to ask the question, you know, what held Lennon's interest at that time uh, with Genesis? But he said that we were one of the bands he was listening to. And that was 73, and of course that was Selling England time. Um, I suspect when you listen uh, to the album and you check out the lyrics, they're extremely idiosyncratic, quirky, very, very English. Um, There's lots of wordplay going on. Um, so the clever little things and characterizations, and I think that uh, Peter Gabriel, as a lead singer, was as much an actor as he was a singer at that time. So you get these sort of little vignettes, sometimes um, in uh, in the course of one song, like the Battle of Epping Forest, where he's imitating various uh, characters. There's the vicar, and then there's the the camp character and there's so there's so much going on um he's narrating it and i think that gives it um, a certain kind of um shelf life perhaps and um and has pushed it in, into the territory of, of being regarded as classic but then there's also the playing and, and the very unobvious use of of what i refer to as inclusive music whether people call it progressive or not i don't know but even in the first song you've got uh, an aspect of Scottish plain song, then you've got the influence of Edward Elgar, the reference to, you know, citizens of hope and glory, the whole hope and glory thing, the British thing, and then it goes into something which arguably predates fusion, and I'm doing tapping on it, and and um, there are keyboard moments that sound like Mozart, and that's all in the, the first song, you know, in the first four or five minutes you get all of that, and Phil's drumming, I think, is you know, he's being a jazz drummer on it to link all these disparate uh, aspects. And uh, so I'm, I'm still thrilled with so much of that, that album. I think it's, it, it's the, the band's strongest album, if you like the lineup that included Mr. Gabriel, of course. Right. How would you say your guitar work had evolved by that point, now at, at that point getting into, at that point of the band, a few years into your into your tenure in Genesis, where do you, where did you feel you were at as you were composing your lines or developing or working off of some of the other melodic lines in that on that recording? Well, I tell you what, there, there were certain things that I had. You know, I, I I had a pedal board which would be considered to be very basic these days. You know, a couple of fuzz boxes, an octave divider, a volume pedal. Um, but then I, I, I got an echoplex, so it meant that I could use repeat echo with all this stuff. And uh, so with the use of feedback and echo and all, all those things, I, for me, it was this kind of seismic shift, the idea that um, the band suddenly 
sounded like it sounded like you were listening to an album because um, I was able to give it pr- production values, and um, that hadn't been readily available up to then. So um, it made a huge difference to the way that I played. I was able to interact with with the perspectives that that, that Echo was giving it, and uh, play in time with long loops and, and various and various things. So um, it was a quantum leap forward, and I think maybe the album was. Um, the fact that we, we were apparently selling all things English as implicit in the title, I think brought it home to an American audience. So, oh, yeah, so these are the, the English guys. You know, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's what this Genesis band is all about. And then you also mentioned the Mozart influence, and I've, I've always heard a bit of a classical or romantic, depending on which genre yeah. or era, in your work, and I've I've been a fan of Eric Satie's piano work. So when you did sketches of Satie, it's well, well, perfect. So that's always been admirable. So what what do you find inspiring, most inspiring about those genres to incorporate into the guitar? Well, it, you know, when I was about fifteen years old, I'd been listening almost exclusively to rock and roll, and um, uh, and then suddenly I heard Segovia playing Bach on one guitar, and uh, I fell in love with it from the first note. So initially I was just interested because he was a guitarist, and um, but then I realized that he's interpreting this wonderful stuff that had been written for violin and cello in the main, um, and it's his own take on it, and you've got extra strings with the guitar, of course. So I suddenly realized there was another kind of guitar hero, and... Um, uh, and this was stuff that you weren't going to get together in five seconds flat. It was obvious that, 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 that there was a lifetime of dedication that had gone into, um, you know, making the keyboard sound as, sorry, the, the fretboard sound as fluent as, as the keyboard. Um, so that seemed like, like a miracle to me. Um, I mean, just that man's work alone. Um, and there were other things I loved. Tchaikovsky and still do love the melodies and Grieg and then all, all the Russians of course you know Mazorsky Borodin so I'm I'm not alone with that and I think a lot of the, the progressive bands Keith Emerson uh, the guys in Yes uh, the Genesis guys you know so many of us were listening to to classical stuff you mentioned in chapter and verse Genesis chapter and verse about how you prefer the term fusion you know art rock has been used theatrical rock prog rock obviously but fusion in particular do yeah. you do you find a definable measure to that term how would you define well, I, it? I, I i love the idea that you know fusion uh, of course it it it's come to mean jazz rock that's what everyone thinks of when they think of fusion so it's it's rock that's got more chords in it but you know that's the cynics uh, interpretation of it um but the idea of fusing disparate genres, uh, or even the term collision, I think, um, is something that, when you've got separate worlds colliding, uh, but doing something uh, cohesive, comprehensive music, global music, what, whatever it is, um, and I think, you know, to a large extent, um, when the Beatles started working with other musicians. Um, that was hugely important. Sometimes they didn't play themselves. And you listen to Eleanor Rigby, and there's not a note being played by the band, but 
the fact that you've got the string players behind it to um, give the song the right colours. Um, I think that's um, a mark of, of maturity and, and obviously you know, uh, uh, shows their greatness, the fact that they addressed you know, that ex- these two extremes, um, uh, you know, songs of compassion by young guys who are on the top of their game, on top of the world, but then decide to start writing about people who are perhaps in flashpoints in their lives, the old lady who dies, the ignored, the lonely, the disaffected, all of that. And the mantle of that, of course, gets carried on through bands such as Pink Floyd, etc. You know, bands that address the walking wounded, the whole kind of wounded healer effect of, of what, you know, the great medicine that music is for so many people who've led disappointed lives. Mm-hmm. Listening through to all of your, I guess, rock-oriented albums, there are different genres and styles and phases. Like you hear the Lindrum Uncured is more of a kind yeah. of a prog metal sound around Wolflight and some of the others. But is there one musical approach you would say is a thread through all of your work, whether it's the rock-oriented ones or even the classical and blues-oriented albums? Well, you know, I tell you what, I do love all of all of the genres for what they offer you know they've all got something you can never dismiss a genre and say oh i won't listen to that because uh when you set prejudice aside you realize that all of the forms are equally um can be equally imbued with spirit it's all in the hands of the player the writer the singer everything um so i i don't know if i can answer this i i think i'm interested in inclusive music but i i love i love it when when you hear orchestral players uh, being integrated into a rock picture and and broadening it to such a uh, a, a degree. Um, I do rather love that. There's, there's, it's it's unbeatable. I, I know the Beatles get a mention for this so much, but then I think with Procol Harum, with you know the wonderful work that that the orchestra did on um, a salty dog, for instance. Um, and uh, for, for me, it, it, it's hugely uh, important and hugely influential uh, for Genesis. You can hear it uh, with uh, early Genesis. You hear the thread. Moving forward, we get to Spectral Mornings. And, of course, 40 years on yeah. since that, we celebrate that on the tour. As you noted, you're going to be playing several fan favorites. Uh, this album clearly has meaning. I mean, Every Day was one of the three solo tracks that were was on the Archive Genesis compilation in 2014. Yeah. And there's yeah. the reputation of your solo on the title track. I had I was listening to it again last night, and it's, it's just it's kind of almost emotionally pulling in a way. So what do you find that makes Spectral Mornings in particular so special, beyond it obviously being the 40th anniversary? Well, I think that there were there were certain things on it that, that um, um, I, I was being ambitious, I think, um, to um, the first track, in a way, fits into a rock format much more. But um, I think the sound of the vocals on, on that album... Um, the use of use of harmonies um, was was really really good. I, mean, I was listening to Virgin and the Gypsy today. Um, it was a very difficult track to record. It nearly didn't work until we added the harpsichords to it. So harpsichords and guitars chiming away, twelve strings, all of that, and two flutes. But use of harmonies, and then I think the beginnings of of um, world music by using the koto on Red Flower Tai Chi. Um, and uh, learning to play that and using uh, nylon guitar techniques to, to try and uh, 
get my hands around that. Um, uh, so world music really began for me there. Um, and so the, these three tracks are very different. You've got a rock track followed by something that's really very folky folk music. And then you've got the sort of um, allusion to, to or a nod to uh, to uh, to world music uh, before we head off into the bombast again and then the end of the pier stuff and, and various other things. Um, so it, it's still, there's something about it that I think is un, unrepeatable. Um, uh, so it's one of my, my, my favorites. I, in a way, you know, when I'm touring, I'll be, I'll be centering on, I think, the three strongest albums. Um, uh, Selling England as, as a Genesis album is my firm favorite. Um, Spectral, which is my favorite from that period of my solo stuff. And then uh, some stuff from the new one, um, which I feel equally confident about and has, and has done great things in the charts in, 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 in Europe. So I'm really proud of, of, of all of that. Um, you have to be, don't you? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty yeah. pretty solid trio yeah. there. Now, do your favorite songs from Spectral Mornings match the fan favorites, or were there any songs that you were, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, pleasantly surprised that, that fans started to like a little bit more than maybe you weren't expecting? Uh, well, I think the ones that get mentioned are the ones that I'm talking about. Um, uh, but I suspect people like the journey. Um, I mean, I mean, journeying through albums and playing something back to back and getting, you know, these um, these points of, 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 of reference. And uh, I remember my uh, my great friend um, Amando Gallo, who's written many books on on Genesis and and what have you. Um, he he wrote to me um, when the album was released and said he felt like it was a trip around the world. And he said it was as if it's um, from Brighton Beach in in England to um, to Hong Kong Harbour. Um, he felt like it was a trip around the world. So yeah, you've got the Spanish music influence with Lost Time in Cordoba and um, all the other things. Um, uh, so I, I think, you know, the the stretch of it or the reach of it um, uh, was was important for me. And um, sometimes these things come off and sometimes they find their echo with, with fans. So I wouldn't say I, I, I knew specifically what what tracks people liked. I know that people liked the, the, um, uh, the title track a lot which is unusual considering it is purely an instrumental, but then there's the aspect of, of the afterlife uh, implied with it. So I think it, I think it gives people a kind of, um, a kind of hope that that's where we're headed as opposed to mankind's ultimate demise one by one. Mm-hmm. It, and to that point, we go to your most recent album, At the Edge of Light, which came out a little over a month ago. And we'll get more yep. into the, the topic of it in, in just a second. But first, having been out for uh, about a month and a half and pushing a month and a half, what what is the fan reaction to the songs thus far now that everyone's had time to digest the album? Uh, it's been the best so far of everything I've ever done. Uh, certainly the best reaction from media, best in the charts for about 35 years, best um, individually. And, um, and so I, I, I'm hugely proud of it. Um, we've got many people on it from all over the world. Um, in many ways, it's the same team that was on the previous album, um, but this time augmented by, by others, um, the McBroom sisters, 
the two soul sisters on it with the gospel inspired track um underground railroad and um and shima mukherjee playing um uh, sitar on shadow and flame i think these people color the album so much because their 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 contribution is 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 so important to it the, the enlarged team we is as if we got the house band but then suddenly it, it embraces all things americana with with the mcbroom sisters and then it's um inviting in india um with you know the tremendous virtuosic playing of shimas on that um uh so it, i think it broadens broadens it and it's the reason why why it's such a firm favorite of mine so if you want to do world music you've got to get in world musicians and world-class musicians as well um uh otherwise you know it can sound a little bit homegrown so instruments from all over the world and it's still a rock record but um uh but with, with the sensibilities of of, of of other places so uh, there, there's, there's the travelogue aspect I think you can tell from the word go that I've I've travelled and I've worked with people everywhere. Um, it's just a case of working with the friends that I've made all over the world. Whether it's uh, the man from Azerbaijan who kicks off the album, um, Malik Mansurov playing guitar, uh, the far-flung references you know are there from the word go. But then immediately it gets into in, into rock the moment the drums arrive after the first couple of bars. We put the drums through a um, a Marshall cabinet, distorted them to hell, and uh, and we kept going. <laughs> what was the biggest? I mean, between having a didgeridoo on, on here and then going to uh, again Americana and gospel with Underground Railroad, what can you can you quantify the biggest creative leap on this, or was this everything going like you said all around the world and everything kind of equal in its inclusivity? Yeah, I think that's right. And so, you know, you try to make something comprehensive just by using all, all your friends, global music. I know people don't like the term uh, world music because it means things that are remote and a bit indulgent and all that. But I don't feel it's like that. It's, it's a case of how are things used so that it's you, uh, but um, but with extra color and, and uh and things that broaden the music. At least that—that's the aim. And uh, and so um, the more outrageous the ideas, or the more ambitious, uh, it doesn't always work. But on this album, I feel feel that it really did. So it seemed as if fate met me halfway with every with every dream, every daydream I had. It seemed as if everything absolutely came off and fell into place. And even the shortest track. Um, on 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 the album uh, um, Hungry Years, which is basically folk rock, and basically um, deliberately simple harmony work. Um, but for me, you know, uh, uh, it, it's a kind of nod to an era of of, uh, of greater simplicity, the 1960s, where you just got short, honest songs. So in the midst of you know prog workouts, uh, I think it's important to make. Or to realize that not everything needs to be an opus, and not everything has to be in a difficult, impenetrable um, time signature, and it doesn't all have to be sport masquerading as music. Um, not all guitar solos need to be fast. Um, so you get those moments of, 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 of the flurry of notes and um, sort of salvos, as I as I think of them as. 
guitar gunning, but in the main, I think the melodic line, whatever it is, has to reign supreme. I know you've talked about how darkness in our world influenced some of the writing and the approach yeah. to At the Edge of Light. So in the months since you have recorded and, and wrote the album, how do yeah. you feel the state of the world has evolved for better or worse status quo? And we got the Brexit deadline coming at the end of yep. this month. We'll see how that yep. goes. What, what do you yes. think now? Well, I think that, well, I think it's just getting worse until there's a real big disaster from everyone uh, indulging the right um, right-wing politics as, a vo- as opposed to... Um, uh, extolling the virtues of the humanitarian efforts, I think that um, uh, we know that it's easy to manipulate, and I, I, it's terribly worrying at the moment. Um, the world is in deep trouble at the moment, and um, uh, I, I don't see it getting better. At least, you know, we have to watch. We have to watch how how, how things. Um, um, unfold, but you know, um, on borders, putting children in cages—I don't think that's terribly smart. Um, we don't want to breed tomorrow's terrorists. We cannot just pen people up and assume that everything's going to be better as a result. I think if the world individually adopts a fortress mentality, then it's back to the idea uh, of of uh, you know the first national anthem. God bless all those in Cave 13 and to hell with all the rest. And I'm quoting Mel Brooks there from the, I think it's from the 2,000-year-old man before he was even making movies. So um, we'll see where the right wing gets us. Well, the good news is music can provide light, and your album provides that. And yeah. we're gonna we're gonna get the opportunity to hear you in t- on tour right here in America coming up later this year, and of course on the new album. Once Thank again, you. yeah, you're welcome. At the edge of light, out now. Take a listen to it. Anyone listening right now, take a listen to that and head to, head to the shows October fourth in Milwaukee, October seventh in Minneapolis. Steve, thank you so much for giving us some time to chat about your career and the music that you're doing. And take care. Have best. Uh, have a lot of fun on the tour. Thank you, Luke. Lovely talking to you. That was a very fine interview with Steve Hackett. If you want to learn more about what he's doing, you can go to his website, hackettsongs.com. Hackettsongs.com. That's spelled with two T's. H-A-C-K-E-T-T, songs.com. He's also on social media. You can follow him there. He has an autobiography coming out in the summer of 2020 called A Genesis in My Bed. So perhaps there will be a fourth part of this Genesis series of Got Time for a Quick Story podcast. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing facilities to do this podcast. You can listen to a lot of these interviews on Got Time for a Quick Story at interviews, which you'll find at greatesthits981.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to Got Time for a Quick Story. Apple, Android, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and rate the podcast as well. The higher the rating, the more people will learn about this podcast. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.